In 2017, the Los Angeles Rams hired a young head coach. In fact, the youngest in the history of the NFL, a guy by the name of Sean McVay. In his first year as a head coach, he led the Rams to a Super Bowl appearance. He has since brought them back into the playoffs multiple times, including winning a Super Bowl several years after he was first hired. The effect of Sean McVay's hiring wasn't just felt in Los Angeles, but was felt around the league, where other teams attempted to do exactly what the Rams had already done. Identify a young up-and-comer, offensive-minded, a terrific leader of men before the traditional hiring age of an NFL head coach in their 40s, 50s, or even 60s. A spat of young coaches were hired across the league. This growing young in the leadership of NFL franchises, multi-billion dollar organizations, was dubbed the Sean McVay effect. One organization had found great success in hiring a young leader. Now everyone else was trying to do the same. This week on Pocket Theology, we're going to be talking about the future of leadership in the church. Is the church going to see its own version of the Sean McVay effect or are we going to continue to grow older in our senior leadership? Let's get into it. Martin, greet the people for me, bud. Well, howdy ho. Nice. Love that for you. This podcast was your idea. Uh, you had made a comment to me about the Sean McVay effect and how you think we're going to have that happen in the church. And I said, nope, <laughs> ain't no way. So we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit. So how about you kick us off? Do you think, and I know the answer is yes. Do you think, and why do you think that the church is going to have its own version, the Sean McVay effect? What, what might that look like? What might cause that? I think that this is going to happen. I don't know when. I'd say probably in the next 50 years, probably. That's my guess. And part of it is because there's a huge group of people that we refer to as baby boomers who are getting ready to retire. So did you say 15? 50, five zero. Ooh, that's a, that's a lengthy prediction, but okay, go ahead. So because the baby boomers are getting ready to retire, that's baby more like getting... 15 or 20 years than 50, but yeah. But it's also going to require Gen X to kind of step back. Baby boomers stay way too long at work. They work until the day they die most of the time. And of course, I'm speaking in generalizations. I know baby boomers who retired whenever they wanted. I also know baby boomers who just worked and worked. The other thing that I notice is Gen X is starting to save up and try and retire earlier and earlier. So here in the next 15 to 20 years, like you said, there's going to be a lot of millennials and a lot of Gen Z and 15 to 20 years, we might even have some kids out of Gen Alpha who are starting to get into leadership. This is why I think this is going to happen. First, our generation uh, Jason and I are a part of Gen Z, technically, even though Jason doesn't always like to claim it. We're in a weird spot where some people would call us millennials and some people would call us Gen Z. But there are less and less 
Bible colleges that are graduating kids, right? Uh, the school that Jason and I went to has shrunk significantly since we were there. Seminaries are starting to have similar-ish problems. But part of it is people aren't getting trained in school. They're starting to step into leadership younger. So um, I'm in a group for youth ministry, youth uh, ministry leaders. And there's a whole bunch of people talking about how do I get this 18-year-old in my group ready to lead? How do I get this kid ready to start preaching and making decisions and leading in the church? And everyone says, go to Bible college, go to Bible college. Bible college was great. I made good friends there. I learned good stuff there. But none of it compared to what I've learned at seminary. Because what I learned at Bible college was a lot of like head knowledge. And we didn't always focus on how to use it. But when I got into seminary, everything I'm learning is focused on why does this matter? And how am I supposed to share this with people? Because the goal of your MDiv, your MA, is to share the communication or communicate the information that you're learning for the most part. It's not just supposed to just stay up there. Well, also knowing like, how did we come to those conclusions? In your undergrad, especially your first two, three years, it memorize what your professor wants you to know, what their opinions are. Once you get into grad work, it's be able to understand where it comes from and how you get there. And then post-grad is produce original research. Yeah. So the reason that I think this is going to happen is because I'm seeing a lot more churches step up and take a role in preparing leaders, which is why Bible college graduation is going down. And I'd argue why seminary training is going down. You think that churches are going to step into the role Bible colleges used to fill? I think that there are definitely some that will. Okay. And I think by doing that, you prepare people earlier. You get a pipeline earlier anyways. So if you find a 15-year-old who is a really great speaker, they really love Jesus, and they feel like they're called into ministry. I knew I wanted to go into ministry when I was 14 years old. My church did not have the ability nor the desire to help me with that. So I went to Bible college. But if I had a preacher, a youth minister, elders who wanted to take charge of that and say, well, let's get started on this, I would argue that where I am right now could have been accomplished about three years earlier, which is insane to me. That means I could be where I am younger. That means that I could fill roles younger. And especially if you're at a church that has a name, has a real name, right? Uh, Southeast Christian Church. Uh, so a big, if you're at a big church with resources. Exactly. Then that means a lot more, mm-hmm. right? Okay. 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 So I need to jump in here. There's like two or three things I want to point out really quick and we can argue about them in whatever order. The first thing is most churches just can't like I cannot train someone if I so if I were just 40 years older than I am. So I'm 65 and I'm ready to retire, but I'm doing all the things I'm doing right now. I've got the same staff, same situation. 
and you're like, Hey, Jason, there's no Bible colleges. You got to train your replacement. You got like two years to do it. You can retire at 67. And then you just like handed me an 18 year old. That's like willing. I would not have time in my schedule to train my replacement. And that's before you even worry about like resources. Cause like both of us, we've learned a ton from reading, right? So one of the benefits of being able to not go to an accredited school, but actually just be trained on the job and not have a degree, but just learn what you need to do is it's cost free. We wouldn't really be able to offer that because my church literally would not have the financial resources to give the software and the reading resources to that individual that they would need. They would have to pay for those out of pockets and they're paying for a education that no one would recognize, but my church of 80 ish people, which is like, unless they know they want to spend their whole life preaching at the church they grew up in. Like that's, that's rough. Cause like some churches might be like, Oh, fine. We don't care that you don't have a formal education as long as you have experience, but man, and that, that's besides the issue of preaching at all at the church that you grew up at is tough because those people watched you grow up and saw all the ways you screwed up in middle school and high school. Like I could never go back and preach at the church that I grew up in because I was a high schooler. Like they knew me as a high schooler and they would always think of me as a child. And they'd always remember the things that I did when I was younger that I shouldn't have done because I was a kid. So it, it undermines your authority. So besides the issues innate to a small church trying to do something like that, the other thing is I just don't think people are willing to hire young. I'm going to stop there. I'm just going to put that out there and I'll say, we'll discuss that in a minute. I don't think churches want to hire young if they have an option, but what what do you say about like all the challenges to a small church doing? Cause yeah, if you're Southeast, you can train people whether or not they'd be willing to take someone right out of high school. I don't know, but they could, my church can't do it. So what are we supposed to do when I'm ready to retire? See, this is, one of the things that is it's sort of changing is the way that we see experience right people are looking at it in a much more varied way so one of the things that i thought was really interesting is i have you know i have a very specific set of skills one of the things that i did in college was i worked at a chinese church and i worked with Asian American students. And that little did I know was part of the reason I got hired here because there's about 11% of Ames that is Asian immigrants or green card students. And they wanted to minister to those people. The things that you do outside of Bible college for many churches means significantly more than where you went or who taught you what you're doing, especially at little churches. So preaching for five, 10 years under somebody who knows what they're doing is going to look better to some places than an MDiv. Part of that is you don't have to pay them enough to pay back the loans on an MDiv. You can pay them significantly less because they don't have to repay everything that they did. You're right. Uh, there are some things that have to be paid for, right? I love logos. Whether or not I was a student, had I known this existed, I probably would have purchased it. It's expensive, but it's a super useful tool. 
the books that are in my office in my house uh most of them were really great some of them were just butts but i got them super cheap so i bought them some of those resources are really worthwhile and if you're planning on developing somebody then your church has to reflect that you have to be a church that disciples people not just the people that are in your church but a church who disciples your leaders to take over when leaders step down. Well, I understand the experience side and I don't disagree. In my opinion, the most successful pastor in terms of like counting metrics in my immediate area has no formal education. He did a one year residency. He doesn't have any degrees. Like that's fine. Experience works. The issue is you still need a church with the resources to support that person while they are getting the training necessary to even begin to gather experience. Like you can't just and throw I'm... someone up on a stage and be like, start preaching. You'll get experience. You need someone with the time to be able to educate them on how to preach, which means you need enough staff to cover the holes. Like if I'm going to go teach someone how to preach, yeah, I can do that. Like I give when we have staff or whoever's preach for me, I usually give some pointers I take an hour or two out of my week to help them write their sermon. But that's an hour or two. That's not me teaching a preaching class, which is what someone needs. It's because like Brandy, our only mm -hmm. other full time minister, has some level of preaching training already. So I'm just refining what's already there. There's already a foundation. If I have to teach the foundation, especially with the goal of someone becoming a full time preacher, Brandy only preaches a few times a year. So I'm not too worried about her being perfect. If I'm teaching someone to be a preacher who's going to preach 40 to 50 times a year, I'm going to need hours a week between writing and giving assignments and helping them write sermons and listening to their sermons and grading their sermons and having them go back and writing lessons and doing lectures and whatever. Like I'm going to have to do the Bible college professor thing for one or two or three people that I'm training, which means there needs to be enough staff at the church. Even if, even if the people that I'm doing it with that are taking those quote classes with me, even if we aren't paying for anything for them, they they have their own jobs, they're supporting themselves, they're buying their own resources. Even if that costs us nothing, it still costs the church money because we have to have enough staff with enough hours to cover for the senior minister or whoever that's doing the teaching. And that's and not realistic for a small church. I'm not saying every church is going to do this. That's like saying that every state should have a Bible college. Iowa doesn't have a Bible college. Minnesota don't got one anymore. They, don't, they do, kind of. Missouri's got two, I'd say two and a half with whatever's up with the St. Louis campus. So you think there's going to end up being like... I think it's going to require connections in areas. So for instance, there's a bunch of tiny little towns around Ames right now. Zeering, Story City, Nevada, uh, Huxley... Boone, all of them have, all of them have to have some kind of church. They all do. But can they all support training somebody? No, you're right. Not everybody can. But Carbondale's 30 minutes from you guys. You could reasonably have somebody work with a pastor in Carbondale for three years. That's how long it took Jesus to train the disciples. And get them to understand what they're doing. Uh, part of it would be shadowing, which doesn't have to cost anybody money. You can 
take them with you. If someone from your church wants to learn how to be a minister, they should be shadowing you. But you're right, you don't have the resources to teach them everything. But there are definitely people who do. So for the technical stuff, they go to Carbondale once a week. For a lot of the relational and, um, I don't know how else to describe it, the the go with the flow type stuff, meet with people when you can kind of thing, they've got you there. That's something that they can just come with for. So maybe you end up with like an association of pastors within an area where like, okay, Jason's going to show you how to run meetings and Bryce, one of my buddies in town, is going to like show you how to do pastoral visits mm-hmm. and then like you know andrew over in carbondale is gonna he's got more staff and so he's got a little more little more latitude so he's gonna do like the lessons on how to preach while you guys are starting to figure things out i could see that working the only issue then is you actually have to have churches that are willing to work with one another and trust one another with their potential future leaders mm-hmm. which I'm sorry, anyone listening to this that's been in the church for a long time knows that churches tend to not trust each other. They see each other as competition. Now, that is something that, like, at BCC, I've been trying really hard to get that out of our culture and to be, like, a culture of a church that values unity because Jesus values unity. But that's still not everyone. Yeah. And I frequently ran into situations where we're trying to work with other churches and like, they won't even do, like, unity services at our building because, well, you might steal our people. And it's like, Buddy, I, what? That's <laughs> so you want us of... to come to you because you won't steal our people, but you won't come here because you think we'll steal yours. Like, what is going on? That's why I think it'll take about 50 years. Because... So you think, like, we need new generations of leaders already there before they'll be willing to? Yes. We need mm-hmm. millennial elders. We need, uh, we need leaders who understand unity. We need people who have seen... Because part of my understanding of church unity came from experiences that I had, mm-hmm. right? So I went to Germany for three months, which was really cool. And the first week I got there, they did a citywide church service. In a city of 500,000 people, they said, we want all of the churches. They talked to all of the churches. They planned this. Yeah. Every single congregation shut their doors on Sunday and said, go to the Go downtown. Go to the plaza. We're going to be doing church as a city together, which was awesome. And I met so many people, and I could barely talk to them. But what was the population of the city again? About five hundred thousand. Okay, about half a million people. And then, how many people showed up to the service? Probably like five thousand, because it was Germany. And then, yeah, so, and we'll assume that there's, like, some people that just didn't make it for whatever reason that are regular members of their church, but 500,000 versus 5,000, that's, what, 1%. Yes. So even if we're generous and we're, like, only half of the practicing Christians in in the city showed up, that's 2% practicing Christians. The reason why things like that happen, these great shows of unity, is because the people that are there are deeply committed and because they're a minority, Exactly. So they have to find common ground with other Christians, regardless of denominational background, whatever. There's because there's so many more non-Christians than Christians. Like you just you need a buddy. You need help. Exactly. So I don't think it's a matter of because I think my my elders understand unity. 
and they understand it's a biblical commandment, but there needs to be more of a pardon the language. There needs to be more of a fire under our ass to do something about this. We need to be more motivated. And the only way that's going to happen is by watching the church shrink for decades. And then when we get to the point where maybe not 2%, but like, like 10% of the U S is practicing Christian. Then we'll be like, Oh crap. We actually need to get along with other people that are also Christians and work together because this is not working. And that's, that's why I give in a lot of time. It's not about people retiring. It's not about people stepping up. It's, we have to realize the situation we're in. So you're maybe even, I thought you were more optimistic than me, but I think actually you're more pessimistic because you're like, things just have to go to crap. And then people will be like, oh no, we have to work together. And then you think this ministry college thing will take off. Yes. And okay. One of the things that I got told while I was in Europe was um, the coasts of the United States are about 30 years behind where Europe's at as a as a nation. Yeah, everyone as makes a- up a different number for it. Some people are like, the coasts are just like Europe. And then some people are like, they're 10 years behind. And then some people are like, they're 30 years behind. And I think it's a load of BS because then you have to be like, well, sub-Saharan Africa is 100 years behind. And that's just racist so well anyways i i argue in the sense of becoming a post post christian culture we're about Mm. 20 to 30 years behind on coasts the midwest is about 20 years behind the coasts because we have so many cultural christians and so many people also because we're insulated there's not a lot of immigrants that come to the midwest but yeah, I still I still don't buy into that because you've seen in the US like right before the second great awakening that like their church attendance stats were worse than ours are today. So like John Mark Homer does a lot of work on this. So actually like the whole like oh everyone used to be Christian and then slowly over time we've become less and less Christian. Still like 70% of the US identifies as Christian. The question is who's actually doing something with it? Who's showing up to church praying, reading their bible, volunteering, giving money to the church, etc. And right before the Second Great Awakening, which is a big revival movement in the U.S., the church attendance stats were worse in the U.S. than they were in 2020. So we've been there and then actually recovered and became a church-going-ish nation, again, a broadly church-going population, and then slowly fell off again. That's not what happened in Europe. Like, they did have revival movements. It's where, like, John Wesley came out of. But it's just different. It's different people, different cultures, different language groups, different socioeconomic statuses. It's just different. And that's why I don't like that. Oh, well, in 30 years, we'll look just like Europe because we're not Europe. We're the United States. And, you know, 100 years from now, Nigeria is not going to look like the U.S. because it's Nigeria. It's not the U.S. Yeah, it's just different. I appreciate your rant, Jason, but. That's that's part of why I've given it so long, because a lot of things have to come together. You think and it's going to become more post-Christian, we're going to get desperate, and then we're going to start working together like that. Yes, that's part of that, part of becoming post-Christian means boomers die. Yeah. Rip, guys. That is a... It's a yeah. sad fact. It is, yeah, that in some areas especially our church attendance numbers are being propped up by older generations that are going to die within the next decade or two. They're going to broadly die out. 
So um, I did a, I did, I want to share this really quick. Okay. Um, for one of my sermons a couple of months ago, I did this. So my church is about 120 people. We have about, I think, 28 people that I could think of off the top of my head that are under the age of 25. Which, that's about one out of five. That's not bad. The problem is, that's the generation that's continually walking away because of poor discipleship, because of poor examples of Jesus, because of just wanting to live however they want. All three of those combined means young people leave. So, I think, I'm going to operate as if this is the number, I think it's 25% of those kids under 21 right now leave, or stay. So 75% leave. 28, I'm terrible at math, Jason. 75% of 28 is roughly 22, 23, something like that. That leaves about six of them. That leaves about six of those people that stay, which is insane. Which means my church of 120 in the next 5 to 10, maybe 15 years goes down to 100. Mm-hmm. Assuming that's assuming nobody that, dies. that pattern continues. That's assuming nobody dies because a mm. huge chunk of my congregation is over the age of 65. Assuming nobody dies. Assuming nobody moves because that's another part. We're 30 minutes from Des Moines. People move down to Des Moines all the time. But also assuming nobody moves in and you don't convert anyone. Yeah. So you're assuming no growth. You're assuming no other types of loss. Growth is in our area significantly staggered from loss though because we're a college town uh, because people will stay for four years while they're in school and leave or they'll stay while they have a job and then move to where grandkids are when they retire so i think we're getting we're getting a little bit off here the issue being we have an older generation that is in many ways propping up the church financially are numbers of butts in seats who's showing up on Sundays and midweeks and whatever else. And the pastors like, and this is a stat we haven't referenced yet, but 50% of all pastors are over the age of 55. That means one out of every two. That means half of pastors are within 10 years of normal retirement age or are past retirement age and just haven't retired yet. Mm-hmm. You want to guess what percentage of pastors are under the age of 40? I'm going to guess 25. 15%. Actually, just say it's like 14.3, which is insanely low. Those older pastors are going to die off, and there's not going to be enough young ones to replace them. I think that's going to push this Sean McVeigh effect as well. We're going to have to get people in while they're younger. I'll tell you, here's what I think is going to happen. If we do not do something before those older pastors retire, because right now the tendency that you see is small churches usually either have a pastor they've had forever. Like they just gave them a chance at a Bible college and they stuck around or they have a young pastor. They just hired like me or like you where like they were looking around. They probably wanted someone more experienced than us. I know my church did. I was told after about a year and they like were comfortable with me that they wanted to hire someone that was 40 or 50. 
and no one would take the job because it's in a small dying formerly coal town now it's kind of a farming town kind of a suburb of carbondale it's just in a weird place but economically it's not a very viable area the population's been shrinking for decades and it's a small church and the church has been shrinking for over a decade and everyone looked at it and went you have no money i don't know anyone there i have no connections to the area the population of the surrounding area is shrinking and the church has no momentum i'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole mm-hmm. and they wouldn't take the job so I think they had two or three people that they offered the job to before me, all decades older than me. And everyone said no. And then I'm coming out of Bible college and it's COVID lockdowns. And we basically ended up in a place where like, I was like, I have no other options. And they're like, we don't either. And they ended up hiring me. And I like to think it's worked out well. Um, I do think there is a much more spiritual way of talking about that for the record. I do think it was a God thing. And I think the evidence of the ministry that has been going on here since proves that, bears that out. But to look at it from a very like cynical point of view, they only hired me because they didn't get the people they wanted. They only hired young because they couldn't get middle-aged. And I see several churches in the area that went the other way. They couldn't get middle-aged, so they hired someone who's really old. Mm-hmm. Like someone who is too old and the more appealing churches didn't want them because they're too old. They're not going to stick around very long. So what you see is a stratification in ages, not 100%, but seems to be the case where small churches under a hundred, they only have one full-time minister. They tend to have either 20 year olds or 60, 70, 80 year olds in the pulpit. They have either someone really young or really old because people that are between their late thirties and early fifties, those are like the prime people. And I call this instead of the Sean McVay effect, I call it the John MacArthur effect. John MacArthur is a preacher in California that Martin and I are not big fans of, but he's very popular. He was hired when he was 30-some years old in his early 30s by Grace Community Church after he had cut his teeth at Talbot Theological Seminary as a representative on staff there. This is a very large church. It was 8,000 people. Last static, I could find was like 2008, 2007, and they were just over 8,000 people. So it's a several thousand person megachurch in California. So it's appealing location, probably has a very large budget, has a lot of attendance. Like it is on paper where you want to be if you get to choose, right? Because you're not going to have issues with resources. You're going to have a big platform, whatever. It's an appealing place. So they're looking out and they have options. And they find someone who already has ministry experience, has a good education, and they go, hey, I want that person. And Martin and I have seen this happen a hundred times where somebody's serving at a small church and maybe they got hired there when they were 20 or 22 or whatever, fresh out of school. And they worked there for a decade. And once they're in their thirties, then the larger church goes, you got experience, you're older, and we want to hire someone that's older, they're more, more respectable in the eyes of the people who are hiring because they're not 20 anymore. And then they just reach out, even though the person might not be looking for a job and go, hey, we've seen your work and we know some people that know you that taught you 10 years ago and we want to offer you twice what you're getting paid right now and come to our church, please. And the person leaves. Mm-hmm. Those medium and large churches and mega churches can not always because people are people and the Holy Spirit may prompt someone to stay where they are, even if that doesn't make sense on paper. And hopefully God's will is done regardless, but just the cold, hard facts of it are pastors are people and they have families they need to support and stuff like that. When a church reaches out and says, hey, we're going to pay you better, give you benefits, you're going to have a bigger platform, you'll have more support staff. It's hard to say no to that. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you see these medium and large churches that poach the experienced ministers that were raised up by small churches. And then those yeah. small churches look around and everyone's looking for their John MacArthur, someone who's already experienced, who's going to be able to step right into the role and just be like, be great from day one. They don't want to have to hire someone young and then deal with the mistakes that come with being young and inexperienced. And this is traditionalism. This is pre Sean McVay effect. The way that corporations and NFL teams and whatever operate, you hire someone who's young ish, so they can still give you 20 years. They're in their forties, fifties. They can still give you 20 years before they retire, but they're already experienced and educated and have proven themselves. So that's who you want as your CEO. That's who you want as your head coach. That's who you want as your senior minister. And churches are still doing that. The issue is small churches think they can do that. And they end up holding out for a year with no senior minister trying to hire people that are not interested in them instead of giving younger people a chance. I'm going to throw this out here too. Jason, you know Mike McDaniels in Miami. Yes. Another He's NFL head coach for anyone that's not tracking. He that. is also under the age of 35. Yep. Um, I love Mike McDaniels. He's a freaking hilarious guy. He trolls players while he's playing. He is like the epitome of a 30-year-old coach. So here's here's what I want to ask you, Jason. Do you know how he got to where he is? I mean, I assume that he had a lot of associate and whatever roles. He was an intern in New England under Belichick, who Belichick's Mm -hmm. a really old head coach. Um, Won a bunch of Super Bowls. Basically like... NFL Jesus. Mm. But um so he was an intern under Belichick when he started and he probably had maybe one or two other roles after that at different teams. But he's super young so he couldn't have had many. And that's the way that I'm starting to see this go. You take something and you as older people might call it cut your teeth. Uh you spend a little time grinding. And that's how the young people talk about it. We grind. You spend some time grinding, maybe five, ten years. And then you get into you get into somewhere where you're respected. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a story. My senior just, pastor. Before you tell this story, I just want to point out my issue with this sort of analogy is if a football coach leaves their team, they're like an associate or something, and they leave because better position then like, okay, fine. I hate it when ministry gets reduced to that. And I said earlier, like openly admitted, small church pastors get poached by larger churches once they've, cu- once they've cut their teeth. I do actually use that phrase, even though I'm 25. I know you do. Once they've cut their teeth, because they're offered usually more money, better benefits, bigger platform, more staff. Like that's usually what it comes down to. And that sounds horrible. And I'm sure there are listeners who heard me say that and they're like, oh my gosh, but you're a pastor. Shouldn't you care about other things? And the answer is yes. And we could do a whole podcast on like why those things do still matter and why you can still be like a good person and a clergy member and think about things like that. But I hate when it gets reduced to that. And I'm being realistic that often the conversation is just that, but it shouldn't be. And there should be people that are just like, man, I just love small churches and they just stay in small churches their whole life because that's what they're called to. And there There should be people that are like, man, I love large churches and they come in as an intern and then just work their way to whatever position they're talented to do for the rest of their career in a large church. And they may never be the the guy preaching on stage, 
but they love large churches. They're gifted for that kind of ministry. And that's what they do. And like, that's how we should think of ministry. But instead it's been reduced because there's a lack of supply in pastors and because, and maybe we can continue this conversation in this direction, probably for the next episode, because we've been talking for a while. Yeah. But we can continue this conversation in this direction, how to keep ministers where they are. Like if you're a small church, what can you do to keep them? One of the biggest issues, one of the reasons why pastors can get poached is because of a combination of not being treated well interpersonally and not getting compensated well. So, so like you need to enable the churches and the pastors to have enough of what they need, be that support within the congregation and financial, like personal financial support, like good wages and benefits for the pastors. And then for the churches that they have enough finances from the congregation to continue to operate correctly and that they have enough pastors to choose from that neither party is forced to make a decision because it's expedient, but mm -hmm. rather can make a decision because the Holy Spirit is prompting them to. If there's enough pastors in the supply line, then any given church can look at the supply line and say, who does God want us to have? Instead of just going like, how much money do we have to throw at the guy down the street to steal him from his ministry? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like we need to fix the system and I don't want to yeah. wait 50 years for it to happen. Hey guys, Jason here. This conversation with Martin went a little bit longer, actually a lot longer than our normal episode length. So I'm going to cut it in half right here and make it into two episodes. Uh, we're going to finish up this conversation about the problems we see in the church, the issues with pastors being poached from the churches that first gave them their chance, the reasons why they don't stay. Uh, those sorts of things. We're going to finish that conversation up next episode, but then we're also going to provide solutions. What can you do as a member of your congregation that loves your church to keep your pastor around and to raise up the next generation of pastors and leaders in the church? Because we think that you guys who are sitting in the pews are going to have a huge impact on how this situation, how the pastor supply shortage plays out over the next 10 or 20 years. So make sure you tune into that. As always, don't forget to leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you hear this. And go give us a follow on Facebook as well. We're not super duper active there, but we're hoping to ramp up our activity there in the future. And you definitely don't want to miss out on anything we do there. It's not just podcast stuff, but it's also recommending other resources. We might do some polls or stuff like that in the future. So you make sure you want to be there and be ready for that. So go ahead and give us a follow there as well.